1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thank you as always for joining us. Who do we have in store for you today? Well, today we are speaking with New York Times bestselling author, Paul Tuff. Paul's best-selling book, How Children Succeed, first introduced readers to the research that shows that character strengths like grit, perseverance, self-control, and optimism play a critical and often overlooked role in children's success. But after that book came out, Tough spent months on the road speaking to teachers and community groups, and after each talk, he, he'd often get the same question, which is, okay, I, I get this, but what do we do about it? Well, Paul decided it's time for a follow-up book, an action-oriented book. So instead of just knowing how children succeed, we can actually help Children Succeed. And that just so happens to be the name of his brand new book, Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. So look, if you've been listening to the show with any consistency, you know, at this point, I have a 15 month old son. Well, he's like 14 and a half months, but I'm not going to split hairs here. But So of course, I was excited to talk to Paul, but I know many of you out there, young kids, maybe older kids, Uh, Maybe you're grandparents and you want to be the know-it-all. Look, there's something in here for everyone. So what do we talk about? Well, in this episode, we're talking about what children need in order to thrive, but also what kind of practices and policies in the home and at school will provide them with the best possible chance at success. Fascinating subject. Great work. I'm so happy we could have Paul on and share that with you all. As I mentioned, so Paul is an author, previous best-selling book, was translated into 27 languages, and spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list. His first book was Whatever It Takes, Jeffrey Canada's Quest to Change Harlem and America, and that was published in 2008. He's a writer at the New York Times Magazine, where he's written extensively about education, parenting, poverty, and politics. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, Atlantic, GQ, and Esquire. Previously, Paul was a reporter and producer for the public radio program, This American Life, which some of you may have heard of. All right, going to turn it over here to Paul in a minute. A few things I wanted to let you know, we will not have an episode on July 4th due to the holiday, so make sure you go ahead and download any of those back catalogs that you wanted to listen to for your July 4th trip. And also, don't forget to sign up on the newsletter where even if we're off, we're on. So go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner. You can sign up there and be on the insider's track. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. I'm going to turn it over now to Paul Tuff as we discuss his newest book, Helping Children Succeed. So I'm assuming, and I don't know if it's fair to assume here, but Is the reason you went down this whole path of writing about children and children succeeding due to your own growing family, or was there some other impetus behind that?
2: Um, I think it's related, but no, I don't think that was the original impetus um, because, you know, I really started writing about uh, children and education – um, more than a decade ago. And my oldest child is just about to turn seven. So um, I, I, it all started for me with a book that I wrote, which came out of an article that I wrote back in 2004 about the Harlem Children's Zone and Jeffrey Canada, the man who ran it. And that kind of led to my second book, which led to my third book. And along the way, I had kids. Uh, and, and that certainly um, deepened my interest and expanded my understanding of what I was writing about. Uh, but it started as a more purely journalistic project.
1: So, okay, I got you. So you took on that first project, and then kind of from there, you said, wait, there's some traction, I'm enjoying this, and then went on to the How Children Succeed book. Is that right?
2: Exactly. And so when I started How Children Succeed, it was almost exactly the time when my first son, Ellington, was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that one felt much more tied up in in trying to find the balance between, uh, r- you know, doing sort of pure reporting and reading research and visiting schools and and uh, doing sort of that kind of straight journalism and also ex- reflecting on my own experience raising uh, my uh, at that point just one son
1: right right and so I want to touch on you know because how children succeed the the book really behind this newest one helping children succeed uh, was the foundation and I want to give some some time there so we first learn I think the core is what are the uh, the traits and the things that parents, or, or I guess that that comes more. But what are the traits that kids have um, in order to be successful?
2: So the pre- my previous book, How Children Succeed, um, drew on this emerging body of research coming out of um, economics and neuroscience and psychology as well as education that showed that the kind of cognitive skills, that narrow band of cognitive skills that get measured on standardized tests, did those skills on their own and the tests, the numbers that they were reflected in those tests, they didn't capture all of what uh, was important in children's success. Both there, there were kids who were succeeding without necessarily having high test scores, and there were kids who had high high test scores who weren't succeeding. Um, And so uh, in, you know, this was starting, I think, about a decade ago, all this research started coming together to suggest that there was this other set of qualities that uh, people had, and especially children had, um, sometimes called non-cognitive skills, sometimes called uh, character strengths, um, that seemed like they were important in children's success. And so how children succeed was was, uh, trying to look at the, what was then a pretty new body of research um, and try to figure out, well, what what are these skills? How are they built? Um, where do they come from? And so the, the kind of qualities that these researchers were talking about included things like grit and curiosity, perseverance, conscientiousness, self-control, optimism.
1: So as we talk about things like resilience and grit and perseverance— Are those, how much of it is nature versus nurture? I've always wondered that, especially having a son of my own. I spend so much time thinking, like, how can I do it all right? And I just see already his personality is going to come through regardless of what I do in some circumstances.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, some of it is definitely nature. Uh, There's a genetic component to everything about who we are. Um, But I I emphasize in both of these books, in both how children succeed and helping children children succeed, the nurture side. Um, I don't think anyone knows what the exact division is between nature and nurture, and I think it's different for different kids in different environments. Uh, But I think the important, for me, the important message for for parents uh, and then more broadly for policymakers is that the environment that kids grow up in has a huge effect on their development, uh, and particularly the the development of these so-called non-cognitive skills, and that the the elements in the environment that matter the most are about their relationships, the relationships that they have, especially with with their parents, but with other adults in their lives. And so... um, uh you know i do think that parents can take it too far and feel like oh everything you know i have complete control over what this child is going to be like and if if things aren't working out perfectly i must have done something wrong um and so i think it's worth guarding against that but but on the whole i think that there is a lot that we do uh as parents that affects how our kids develop it's just not always um you know it's not always a a clear cause and effect um in other words Children, like all of us, are are irrational beings. (laughs) Um, And so we don't shape them just by, like, you know, telling them to do certain things and then they do those things. As you know, it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, So, but but that said, I think there's a lot that's going on in terms of uh, the environment that parents create in the home, the messages, the sort of psychological messages that we send, uh, both explicitly and implicitly. uh, What the research suggests is that that does a lot to shape how kids develop, especially in this um, character dimension.
1: So how does it differ when you were talking about how children succeed versus helping them succeed?
2: So, um, well, so these two books uh, are, as, as you said, they're definitely related, but they are um, they're separate as well. So how, how children succeed was uh, – but one of the ways they're different is just in the way that I wrote them. So how children succeed is more of a work of uh, narrative nonfiction, meaning that I took a lot of um, – Characters, some children, some educators, a pediatrician, um, mentors, uh, and and fa- different families, and wrote about um, their stories as ways to illuminate this research. Uh, and so, I that there's a sort of long tradition in in uh, journalism of this narrative, long form nonfiction. And there's a lot about it that is, I think, appealing to readers. But it is also, you know, if if you are an educator or a parent or a mentor and you're actually looking um, answers to the question of like, what do I do in the classroom? How do I help these uh, young people who I'm responsible for to succeed? Um, Those stories don't always give you clear answers. And so that was what I was hearing from lots of readers after that, uh, after How Children Succeed came out. They wanted to know, what do we do? If all this science is true, what do we actually do? And so helping children succeed is my attempt to answer that question. It is a more uh, practical uh, set of strategies and ideas that I'm hoping that parents, teachers, educators, and and those of us who are trying to shape policy um, to create environments that surate, surround children can use to actually affect what we do every day.
1: Right. Now, that makes complete sense. And my wife is a kindergarten teacher. And I, I mean, listening to her and listening to the differences in personalities, the way kids react, and, and then the job of specifically a kindergarten teacher to be able to maneuver and understand this is how I have to approach it with this child, this is how I have to approach it with this child, really goes to show that I'm sure you came up with there's a number of different ways to help the individual as opposed to probably prescribing one thing for all.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think I think one of the many reasons that the, the job of a teacher is so uh, complicated is that, yeah, on the one hand, you know, I think there are certain principles that we want teachers to understand. And part of what I'm trying to, I mean, I think every, every teacher has their own intuitions, but I think they're also, you know, learning constantly in graduate school and in professional development uh, about how kids develop and what the right approach is to help Steer them in the right direction, um, but it's one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book as well is to give uh, teachers specifically like your wife, um, this grounding in the science of of brain development and uh, character development, personality development, how children's environments shape them in order to give them some principles, some ideas, some strategies of of what to do differently in the classroom. But that said, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right that that while these principles I I hope anyway, are helpful. Um, There's also inevitably a lot of improvisation involved when you're a teacher. Um, No rule sort of works perfectly for every kid. Uh, and That's probably more true in kindergarten than in any other time.
1: I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts of it, but first, I still want to go back a little bit. Let's talk about the, the research in how they succeed, was that things like the marshmallow study that I've heard about where they put kids in a room with basically marshmallows and told them not to eat them? Is that kind of the research you were looking at?
2: Yeah, that was one of the things that I wrote about in How Children Succeed. Um, yeah, there, there, that, that was kind of one of the early early indications that there was something going on in these personality traits that children had. They're, they're you know, something as random as whether they would grab a second marshmallow uh, or be able to delay gratification and control those impulses. Um, The researchers were discovering that those small personality uh, traits and habits in in childhood uh, corresponded with uh, different sorts of outcomes in later childhood and in adulthood. So the, the marshmallow test was sort of the most vivid one because of, um, you know, anything involving marshmallows is vivid. Mm-hmm. But there was a bigger study done by some researchers in New Zealand that tracked uh, children, a whole a whole cohort of children from birth all the way into adulthood. Um, and it, in a you know, much more sort of reliable scientific way, showed that how kids were rated in childhood and, I think in early elementary school uh on things like their conscientiousness corresponded with all sorts of outcomes in in early adulthood, like how much they were earning, whether they were employed um, whether they had run into you know money trouble, whether they had had trouble with the law, whether they had gotten married and stayed married um and so I think what what all this research suggested to people, whether it's with marshmallows or or uh, or anything else, is that, that you know all these things that seem like they're just little personality traits and habits that kids have, these really matter. Um, and and in most of our, in mostly in our education system, we're very focused on. Intellectual traits. You know, we think like if you're a kindergarten teacher, uh, like your wife, you're, the pressure on you right now from above is to uh, help students succeed in math and reading, uh, and you are your, your ability to accomplish your job is assessed based mostly on on how well your students are doing in math and reading. And so, what all of this research that I wrote about and how children succeed, I think, is is pushing us toward is realizing that um, actually there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on in child development and in education, and that if we want to uh, have teachers help students succeed in the most profound way, they need to be aware of this research and directing their, uh, their pedagogy, the, what they do in the classroom, toward helping kids develop um, perseverance and self-control and uh, optimism and curiosity, as well as the ability to uh, read and write and do math.
1: And then brings me to this question of, do you think we're going the wrong way or have been going the wrong way in uh, regarding the way we raise our kids? Because a lot of the character traits that you speak of, I think, have been almost guarded out of children. You know, one of the I remember reading a study about how I think um, the the time spent in free play and recess in America is just continuing to go down. And in other countries, it's much larger and the impact that has on the growth of a, a young child. And I think in the past wouldn't perhaps we, uh, parents might not have had the ability to be helicopter parents as much, they let their children learn these lessons the harder way. Do you think we've been going backwards or we're just being more well-versed on what's right and what we should do?
2: I think there are some some things that have been happening both in education and in parenting over the past 10, 20 years that have been detrimental to kids. So in some ways, I think, yes, we have been going in the wrong direction. Um, I mean, in other important ways, I think we've been going in the right direction. Um, But I'll I'll talk about it in two ways. I mean, so in terms of education, there has been this big push over the last 15, 16 years um, on the federal level and, and down at the state and local level as well to focus all of our attention on standardized tests uh, and the kind of skills that are measured on those tests. And so I think that has really shaped um, a lot about uh, how schools function um, in a few ways. I mean, one is just literally it's meant that teachers have have been – have spent more of their time focused on this narrow set of skills and not on the broader set of uh, abilities that children need. But I think it's also created a level of anxiety in the classroom, um, and especially in schools that serve a lot of low-income kids, uh, where there's often a lot of stress for these kids already um, in their homes and in their communities. The fact that so much of the pressure of these federal laws has been on those schools and and, and the the need for them to improve their test scores uh i think that it has created this kind of anxiety in for a lot of teachers a lot of administrators and that that trickles down to students in ways that are often really counterproductive at the same time i think in the home there has been this um new sense especially among more affluent parents this new sense of, of sort of competitive anxiety this real pressure uh, for kids to succeed in again in what I consider to be a pretty narrow uh, way that that uh, there's more anxiety about test scores about um, accomplishments about you know college admissions um, and again I think that puts a lot of pressure on students and so there are a lot, there's a lot of data out there about how uh, children uh, are more stressed out they have they do have less freedom less autonomy less free time less unstructured time less time for play um, and that all you know the science is pretty clear that that can be really detrimental to them uh, and then at the same time they have this pressure on them um, that kids in the past I don't think felt as acutely uh, to sort of fulfill their parents destiny and their family's destiny by how well they do in school and and what I think common sense tells us, but also the research tells us, is that that can be really detrimental to children's development when they feel a lot of external pressure. Um, it it uh, stresses them out, first of all, but it also takes away from their own intrinsic motivation. Uh, so kids, even kids who like school, are often less motivated to learn and more motivated simply by uh, checking off the right boxes and getting the right numbers.
1: All right, so let's take that child who was more motivated to get the right numbers and let's just say well let's just say for conversation you know purposes that child was me (laughs) (laughs) like here's the thing okay i was being facetious obviously to everyone but you know school was always really easy for me but it was because i knew how to do what was asked either what was obviously asked or what was implied um and then I never, I really feel like I never explored my own curiosity until well after school when I realized like, wow, nobody's telling me what to learn. What do I find interesting? How do we get that out of not just the school system, but our own mentality as parents or mentors or leaders? How do we say, how do we influence them to think more uh, for themselves or, or, or do it for their own
2: purposes? I mean I, you know I think it's a big shift for a lot of parents and a lot of educators um and then for a lot of kids as well uh you, the good news I think is that children are naturally uh are natural learners you know they're they're curious they are um they persevere. Uh, they when there's something that they're interested in, you know. I see this in my, you know, 16 month old, but I certainly also see it in my almost seven year old. When there's something that they're interested in, whether it's you know uh, Fisher Price basketball or Minecraft or anything in between, they will um, get incredibly engaged in it and and push themselves as learners in all sorts of uh, amazing to watch ways. Um, and Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of what we do as parents and as teachers that takes them away from that. Uh, We don't give them as much um, freedom and room and uh, sort of respect for their curiosity as would be ideal. And there's a lot about how we push kids when we push them using kind of behaviorist techniques with uh, incentives and disincentives, when we help them equate learning with the result of learning, you know, a number or a reward or a sticker of some kind, rather than just the experience of learning, that is, you know, that really takes them away from from what I think kids naturally have, which is just like learning is actually fun. And I think there aren't a lot of kids in your average school who who would uh, who would say that. But I think every child, um, you know, when they're your kids' age or my kids' age, uh, they know that learning is fun. They that's what that's all they do every day is try and learn new things. So um, uh, on the one hand, I think that. The, the good news is that we we can we can help kids by just doing a little bit less. <laughs> um, but but I think that 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 actually uh, is a real challenge. I think for a lot of parents, um, just giving kids the the sort of space and opportunity and resources to learn um, and to explore their curiosity that is uh, that's a big shift. I think for a lot of parents,
1: for some reason, I just had this idea. I I don't know what it was like a visual. I tend to think of visuals of, you know, you can either think of it as your child is is the train and you're putting them on a track right so it just can follow this track or and you tell me what you think or it's like a bowling lane and you can just be the bumpers so they're gonna kind of go back and forth but eventually they'll get there and knock down some
2: pins yeah
1: i don't know i don't know uh, why that just occurred to me
2: i like it i mean the only way that i would sort of expand the, the your metaphor a little bit i like your bowling metaphor um is that you know that i think that that sometimes you don't even want to have the bumpers there, you know, Mm. like sometimes you want your kids to roll a gutter ball. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, and I think that that's another place where parents get, um, get particularly anxious that they don't want their kids to fail. And obviously in the big picture, um, of course we don't want our kids to, you know, to have bad lives. But I think that, that, impulse in a lot of parents extends to not letting them have any moments of failure, that any setbacks, any, you know, bad grades, any mistakes uh, are cause a cause for sort of anxiety on our part, right? Which obviously then um, is communicated to our kids on a, on a deep kind of level. Uh, and in fact, what the research suggests, especially that I wrote about in, in how children succeed is that those moments of failure of setbacks of uh, Struggling and then overcoming that struggle, those are incredibly important moments in the development of these character strengths like grit and self-control and conscientiousness that that having those moments letting uh, being allowed to have those moments of failure um, and learning from them is the most important way that we learn and I think there, there is a lot in the way that we organize our schools and that I think a lot of families uh, are functioning as well that pushes kids away from feeling uh, that they can fail and that they can learn from their failures when they do fail.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses. Like so many of you, our love of learning didn't stop when we finished school. That's why we're excited about the new Great Courses Plus video learning service. You'll get unlimited access to thousands of The Great Courses online lectures on so many topics taught by top professors. We really want you to try The Great Courses Plus, so they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch hundreds of their courses for free, including the course we just watched, Fundamentals of Photography. Fundamentals of Photography, taught by professional photographer and National Geographic fellow, Joel Satori, gives you tools and techniques to take better pictures. This course has exactly what you're looking for. If you're looking for advice on lighting, framing, perspectives, It's all here. Check it out today, Fundamentals of Photography. At Smart People Podcast, we're big fans of The Great Courses Plus, and we want you to try it too. As a Smart People Podcast listener, when you sign up, you'll immediately get one month free to start any lectures you want. Here's how you do it. Start your free trial today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smartpeople. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart people and now back to the episode
1: yeah i just saw this video on facebook it was one some oh, it was d'angelo williams uh nfl football player and uh and he was talking about how his daughter was doing these races and her first race she got like fifth place or something and she came back and said hey dad i got this participation trophy and he said go give it back and she was like why and he was like because you didn't earn it and then she won, like, the next three races. And, you know, look, who knows? It's just, it's just a story behind it all. But I think there's a, a lot of truth behind, you know, look, you got to earn it if you think you just get it handed to you. That's what's gotten us into a lot of trouble. But I, I feel like that's not something that most people at this stage, I, f- I feel like we get that. You know what I mean? Like, have you found that that mentality of let them fail is becoming more mainstream now?
2: I think... um Saying that has become, yeah. um, and I, you know, I, I, think the the participation trophies. It's like I, I, I feel like so many people have, have have like made a case against participation yeah. trophies. I can't believe anyone gives them out anymore. Right. Um, but 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 I feel like in reality, what's hap- what often happens in families, uh, especially you know better off families, is that um the the moments of like finding finding opportunities for challenge and struggle um that that they they happen in subtler ways you know that they that um that i think it has has a lot to do with how we uh organize our kids time you know like the opera the the activities that we choose for them versus how much we let them choose their own uh their own moments you know like the the when, I think when we're talking about moments of failure, um, it doesn't have to be in sort of an organized uh, environment, you know, like f- losing a little league game or something like that. I think, you know, the, the, certainly I think that's, that's important and I think the way that we organize our, our kids' sports uh, is really important and the messages that we send them matter a lot but i think it's also important to remember that like those moments of uh of struggle and challenge and failure come doing homework at night and you know setting the table and you know playing with your little brother and all of these kind of moments how we talk to kids about whether it's okay to struggle and whether it's okay to um uh to have setbacks i think I think that really matters. And, and how we talk to kids about the, the process of getting better at things, I think matters as well. I think there's a lot in how we, I mean, it's, it's it almost sort of goes without saying, right? Like in, in sports or in anything else, a lot of how childhood works, I think, is that we try to find what our kids are good at and push them in that direction, right? In some ways, of course, that's just what you do. But there's something about that that I think takes away from the experience of, like, it's kind of good to be the worst kid on your mm-hmm. basketball team, <laughs> and because you really love basketball, and in Instead of like, let's switch you to a sport that you're better at, even if you're not particularly excited about it. Let's have that experience of like being the kid who struggles and has to work harder than everybody else. Um, and I think for for in, especially in well-off families, being that being that person who is the person who is you know doing something that they're not that good at and that they're struggling through um, is seen as sort of shameful. Uh, and I think that that message gets sent to kids in. Dozens of different ways all the time, and when we can reverse that and say, like, actually, it's the kid who's struggling uh, and and trying to push themselves through uh, difficulties that is that, that that child is succeeding more than anyone else. I think that message go, gets really deep for kids, and it, it uh, gives them permission to struggle, whether it's with um, a sport or uh, a uh, more intellectual activity, or you know, just just a interest.
1: You know, I, 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 that reminds me of, so in helping children succeed, there's a pretty big focus on poor families, poor kids. Yes. And as you kind of were just mentioning, you know, some differences with people or kids who grow up with, with money, right? With privilege. Um, Why start with those that might not have a certain amount of material goods or even their, their basic needs met? And then Is it fair to translate some of that learning to those in different situations, perhaps the more uh, affluent?
2: So in How Children Succeed, the book that came out uh, a couple years ago, I, I talked about a broader range of kids so there there was a, a lot of reporting that happened in high poverty neighborhoods um, but I also did a lot of reporting in independent schools and, and wrote about this uh, what I find to be pretty interesting research about affluence and how affluence tends to stress kids out almost as much as uh, poverty does um, but in helping children succeed I wanted to take on this very specific question of what it is in the lives of kids who are growing up with adversity uh, especially kids in poverty how that adversity affects their development and then what kind of interventions can help those kids succeed uh and so so in some ways i was narrowing my focus but but i think for um for a very specific reason which is that i think i do think that the the challenges that well-off kids face are important and it's certainly important for um Parents to think about, and for the educators who are educating those kids to think about it. But as a policy question, I feel like it's not a huge concern. Like I feel like individual families um, uh, uh, can think that through, and you know, can read books like mine and um, and change their practices, and can really help their kids uh, kind of on their own. But I think that kids who are growing up in poverty and other forms of adversity, they um, they need more help. I mean, that's that's a big part of what public policy is and does, and should do uh, is helps create systems of opportunity, uh, f- f- resources that provide opportunity to children who are growing up without enough resources. Um, and so that, that's, that's why I set out to write this new book, to, to try to answer that question of what do we do, what can we do to help those kids succeed?
1: And do you, and do you think that there's a pretty good translation into those versus kind of the general population?
2: Um, yes and no. I mean, I think, I think a lot, so a lot of the research that I draw on in helping children succeed is, uh, research in neurobiology and how the brain develops, especially in early childhood and how growing up in, um, stressful environments, especially intensely stressful environments, what, uh, doctors sometimes call toxic stress, how that, uh, has a really detrimental effect on children's development and, um, there's data that shows that when kids are in poverty especially in you know high poverty neighborhoods they're more likely to be in really stressful environments for all kinds of um, obvious reasons you know I think life life uh, when you don't have a lot of money just is more stressful uh, and that stress often gets passed on to kids um, but it's not you know it's, it's not by any means a perfect correlation there are a lot of kids who are growing up in uh in poverty, who actually have very stable, um, secure, calm home environments, and that helps them succeed and develop well. And then there are kids who are growing up in affluence who actually have uh, extremely stressful, unstable, chaotic environments at home, um, because they're often because their parents are mostly absent or are struggling with one issue or another, uh, and. In that case, money doesn't help very much. Uh, Being in that kind of stressful, chaotic environment is bad for kids, no matter how many other resources are around. Um, So I do think that there's a lot about what parents do, both positively and negatively, to affect their children's development, especially as connects to this issue of stress that is relevant for uh, any parent to know. And certainly this research about what what parents do in early childhood uh, has affected me a lot as I've been trying to help raise my younger son over the last uh year and a half um but i do but again i do think that there as a, as a policy issue this is something that is more specifically um important for us to think about in terms of kids who are growing up uh in low-income homes
1: well if there's one thing i know about our listeners and the show we love learning about the brain and i know you said you focus a lot on brain development and in addition i have this this tugging question that's talking that, you know, I want to ask you about the stress at being a fairly new father. Um, and even by most accounts being, you know, middle-class, whatever, it's just, there's inherent stress with the first child and maybe second and third. I can only speak to the first, but yeah. so I'd like to spend, you know, the, the good remainder of our time talking about wh- what does the brain development of a child look like essentially. And then as it relates to stress and what you can do in the home, to foster a just a, a more well-balanced, well-rounded child, how do we do that? So first, let's start with brain development. Tell us what you found out there and what the research is saying now.
2: Um, so I think all these things are, are connected. You know, the, the, the brain develops best when in, in early childhood, a child is in an environment of relationships that has a couple of elements one is a sense of calm and stability and warmth when that child is you know surrounded by not a lot of you know loud surprising scary noises and 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 uh you know sudden sudden surprises those those are scary for kids understandably um and but i think more importantly when they're in a uh you know what psychologists call a responsive relationship. So uh, there's this phrase serve and return parenting that I read about in Helping Children Succeed and neuroscientists and psychologists have discovered that serve and return parenting um, is really important in the development of children's brains and especially in the development of these uh, the sort of the building blocks that underlie these non-cognitive skills or character strengths. And serve and return parenting is just the the, the sort of moments of back and forth between a parent and a child where they're um, looking at each other uh, close, calm, and the baby uh, indicates something like babbles or points to something or uh, does something cute, and the parent responds by saying, um, "Oh, that's your that's your little dolly, right?" Or, "Oh, you're looking at the bird up in the sky." Um, and and those moments are important in a few ways. They're important ver- in terms of. Uh, vocabulary development. You know, there are moments of, of talking back and forth that help kids uh, develop their own vocabulary and v- develop their own speech. But more importantly, what psychologists are discovering is that they are um, moments where kids understand their place in the universe uh, in important ways. You know, I mean, you you know, having just gone through the first year of your child's life, um, it often seems like like kids are just sort of barely getting through the day like all they're thinking about is eating and sleeping and not much else is going on but in fact you know as you know like these babies are learning an enormous amount right and even though they're they're often not early on learning uh language numbers and the stuff that that we think of as what's important in kindergarten what they are learning is their place in the world you know they're they're like who they are who these Giants surrounding them are (laughs) uh, what they're able to expect from the world. And those little um, cues that mostly come through this sort of serve and return parenting. Give them uh, these important messages. And and when kids are in warm, responsive, calm, uh, serve and return environments, they get the message that life is going to be um, okay, you know, that they can uh, – that they, they have people around them who are going to support them and help them and provide for them, that it's good to be curious about things, that if you, you know – open a box, something fun is going to be inside usually. Um, and those, those are really like psychological messages. You know, it, it seems kind of crazy to talk about the psychology of a six-month-old. But absolutely, our, our psychology is being built in those moments. Um, and, and so there's this phenomenon that, um, uh, that psychologists talk about called secure attachment. And when children are in a, an environment, especially in the first year of life, where they feel this close, warm connection to a parent or a few parents, um, and when when they feel security, when they feel this confidence that this person is going to be there when they need them, um, this has this enormous effect on how kids do later on. There's this study that I read about uh, from... Um, wait, where is it from? from? From a couple of psychologists in... Suddenly I'm blanking on where that study's <laughs> from... Uh, the Development of the Person is the name of the book, um, and, and it finds that when kids have this secure attachment in the first uh, year of life, which you can measure through a variety of different tests, that correlates with kids in pre-K being more confident, more outgoing, more able to, you know, kind of entertain themselves and and stick with tasks for longer periods of time. In middle school it equates with kids who are more uh, sort of socially adept and able to deal with different sorts of situations, and it even correlates with high school graduation rates. So and all of that starts in the first year of life in those little back and forth moments between parents and kids. And when 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 children are not getting that kind of warm, responsive, serve and return, secure attachment care in the first. Year and first few years of life, uh, it can have a really detrimental effect on their development. They're getting very different sorts of messages from their environment—the message that you know you can't really trust other people, that uh, it's a dangerous world, it's a world full of trouble, and you need to prepare for that. Uh, and so those kids, they they, they adapt in different ways. That fires up their fight or flight response. They, um, you know, there's there are biological changes when you're in that kind of stressful environment. Your immune system um, gets amped up. The your stress response system, the presence of uh, chemicals in your bloodstream like cortisol and adrenaline increase. And all of that affects how, again, affects how kids behave on the first day of kindergarten. Um, and so f- certainly true for parents, but I think it's true as a policy question as well. If we want to help kids um, be in a position to learn and to thrive on that first day of kindergarten, there's a whole lot that we can do um, in the first, few years of life, and especially the first year of life, um, but it's all about the, those little moments, those little back-and-forth moments between parents and children.
1: You know, I, I actually am in the middle of this book. Um, it's called The Last Best Cure, and it's all about how you can use your thoughts and all these different things to, to heal your body, really. Um, but specifically, the author talks about these things called ACEs, which are Adverse Childhood Experiences. And it's I'm seeing the parallels so much. I'm wondering if you, have you ever come across that term in your research, or perhaps that book, or anything like that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is something that I write about both in how children succeed and in helping children succeed. I think it's a really important. Um, it, it was very important, I think, in in helping the field as a whole, understand the importance of uh, stress on children's development. And when kids are in traumatic situations, um, it affects their physical development and their uh, mental development and their psychological development. The Adverse Childhood Experience study on its own mostly measured the physical side of things. So this study found that when kids uh, experienced a whole lot of adversity in childhood, especially as measured by traumatic events. Um, As adults, they had heart disease rates that were twice as high as normal and cancer rates that are twice as high as normal and emphysema rates that are four times as high as normal. Uh, But what researchers have discovered more recently uh, and that I write about in Helping Children Succeed is that there's also this effect through these stress pathways on children's uh, mental ab- abilities and their psychological development. Uh, and that plays out in school. So there's one study I read about that when, when children uh, have experienced four or more ACEs for more of these sort of traumatic Categories of traumatic experience. Um, they are more than 50% likely to be kids who are labeled as learning problem having learning problems or having behavioral problems in school. And when they have zero ACEs, when they haven't experienced any real trauma in childhood, there's only a 3% chance that they are the kids who are labeled as behavioral or learning problems. Um, so when you when you see those statistics, you know, when you're a kindergarten teacher like your wife, it really gives you a different perspective um, on what's going on in your classroom. Um, it's certainly not a perfect correlation, but you know I think any any teacher sort of has this intuition as well that the kids who are often struggling in kindergarten are ones who have difficult home lives, um, and often those those home lives the way that it affects kids' development is through these pathways of stress, uh, and so I think there's a way to look at that data at, at, and um, and interpret it the wrong way as saying like, well, well, kids who come from these difficult backgrounds, they just can't succeed. They're, they're doomed. They are, you know, sort of their, their brain damaged. And actually that's not at all what the research is suggesting, but it is suggesting that these kids have real challenges. And I think if we understand the, the, the pathways through which those, those challenges operate, uh, that it's mostly through the development of their stress response system, it gives us, um, Gives teachers like your wife, or I think any educator, or really any policy person, any voter, any citizen, a new way of thinking about how to help children succeed. That a big part of what we need to do is to is to help improve children's early environments. And I think there are some parents who can do that alone, who can you know read my books and and uh, and read other books and and change the way that they are parenting. I think there are other parents who need additional help, especially you know, parents who are. Um, living in poverty and, and experiencing all the stresses that go along with that. And so that's where I think policy comes into play. Uh, we need to create systems, and I write about some of them in helping children succeed, some of the interventions that work. We need to create systems and interventions that can help support those parents um, one-on-one, like home visiting programs uh, that go into homes and help parents change the dynamic between them and their children to increase that secure attachment, increase that um Uh, serve and return parenting, diminish stress, uh, diminish those sorts of stressful situations that kids can experience, that is actually not that hard for parents to do with the right kind of support. And when it happens, it has this profound effect on how children do, again, physically, as the ACEs study shows, uh, but also in terms of their psychological and intellectual development.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for that. And I want to end on just one question here, and that is, for, for those that have listened, there's nuggets throughout that we've picked up. But if you could leave them with something, maybe it's new parents, maybe it's teachers, maybe it is policymakers. What's the one thing we can do to really help children succeed? I mean, if we can put something at the top, how would you round it out?
2: I think the, the thing that I think is most helpful to think about, whether you're a parent or a teacher or um, someone who's trying to shape policy is that the environments that children grow up in are are the most important thing for their development uh and we can shape those environments Um, i think there's a there's a danger when we just think about skills whether it's cognitive skills or non-cognitive skills is that it puts the pressure on the kids you know like these kids just have to somehow get these skills and 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 they kind of need to figure them out for themselves. Uh, and our job is just to push them toward getting as many of those skills. But what this research that I write about in Helping Children Succeed suggests is that really our role as the adults who are surrounding kids, again, as teachers, parents, or policymakers, uh, is to create environments where those kids will thrive. And those the environments that work are environments where kids uh, do feel a sense of relatedness and belonging, where they're not stressed out, where they're getting the right kind of stress, but not uh, toxic levels of stress, and when they're experiencing real challenges, uh, again, both in school and in the home. So the way that we challenge our kids and the way that we talk to them about what those challenges mean, um, those moments might seem really small in the home or in the school. But what the research suggests is that those are these profound Moments, sometimes transformative moments for children, where they re-evaluate and rethink who they are and what their job is uh, as a kid and as a student. Um, so we have we have an enormous amount of uh, power, I think, uh, to shape those environments, and we need to think carefully about how we're doing it.
1: Well, Paul, thank you so much. This really has been some some great information. Again, the book is Helping Children Succeed: What Works and Why. Where else would you like to direct our listeners? I mean, do you write about this topic or others elsewhere if they're going, good, I need more, I need more?
2: Uh, Well, the place that I would uh, direct them is to my website at paultuff.com, which is P-A-U-L-T-O-U-T gh.com and if you go there now with this new book helping children succeed there is a a web version Um, so there are links to buy the book but there's also a web version where the contents of the book exist but there are also uh, links to some of the research i write about videos that you can watch Um, some of this information is is in chart form and graph form as well Um, it's a really kind of interactive uh, experience that supplements the book so i would encourage readers to check that out if they're interested
1: Great. Well, again, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I know you got another one coming up here in a few minutes, so I'm going to let you go and uh, look forward to getting this one live and we'll let you know when it goes out there.
2: Great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Paul Tuff. Paul's book, Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please do not forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. When you do your shopping through smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, sends you over to Amazon as normal. You add the items to the cart, check out just as you normally would, and we get a nice little kickback from Amazon at no cost to you, and it truly is a huge help to the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. I know we ask each and every week, but it is such a small thing that goes a long way for helping out the show. So if you could go ahead and leave a comment, rating, review over at iTunes, we would be much appreciative of that. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please send us a message at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet, you can do so over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We've always got great things coming out monthly in there. We'll let you know about any upcoming webinars, all kinds of good stuff. So head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter there. We've got some great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next week.